Welcome to Parenting That Kid. My name is Ashley Tolliver. As a mom of twins, one being a highly sensitive child who responds to the world in a non-traditional and sometimes challenging way, I understand the desire to find the golden answer. Maybe there is no golden answer, but there are resources, tips, and tricks we can all use to help us make this uniquely normal parenting journey a little more fun. This podcast is a roadmap to parenting that kid for myself and other parents. If recording my journey as I seek a clear starting point, community, and effort to normalize what sometimes feels abnormal supports at least one parent, then my time is not wasted. And hey, if it doesn't, well, there's documented proof that moms deserve a glass of wine. Cheers! Elizabeth Stitt has a very impressive resume and a passion for helping parents. She's a certified professional co-active parenting coach, a retired teacher of 25 years, the author of the book, Parenting as a Second Language, a guidebook for joyfully navigating the trials, triumphs, and tribulations of parenthood, and of course, the most important job of all, a mother and a stepmother. Elizabeth understands and can relate to the challenges that parents face navigating this bumpy parenting path and has a passion for supporting and teaching parents the necessary skills and strategies to rock their parenting role. So thank you, Elizabeth, once again, for joining me and sharing your expertise with myself and our listeners. Um, Do you mind just saying in your own words who you are and what you do? Because I just gave out all this professional sounding stuff, but I'm sure you've got a very elegant way of presenting it for laymen to understand. (laughs) (laughs) You're so cute, Ashley. Uh, Yes. Sure. Uh, I taught 25 years, and in those 25 years, I noticed a big shift both in kids and how they were kind of being in the world, but also in parents. And just to exemplify that, at the beginning of my teaching career, I sort of a back-to-school night, I would give my spiel, and then I would see that a conference, and, you know, I'd sort of say, like, you know, these are the things Johnny's doing. And these are the things that I'd like him to be working on. And the parents would be like, thanks, Mrs. Stitt. See you in the spring. And I wouldn't, you know, I pretty much wouldn't hear from parents until the spring. Mm-hmm. Unless, you know, I had some concern with reaching out to them. They trusted that I was doing my job. And I trusted that things were going okay at home unless they had let me know or I was seeing something of concern in a kid. Go forward 20 20- or, you know, sort of 15 to 20 years, and I began to see the shift, and I don't know how it works with your school, but here in California, we post the class lists in, like, the office window, the last thing, like, Friday night before school opening on Monday, and all the families flock to see, like, oh, what teacher did I get? Who's my homeroom teacher? And, you know, nowadays, uh, if that's Friday afternoon, by Sunday night, I have a full inbox of emails saying, Dear Mrs. Stitt, the thing you need to understand about Ashley is that she's a very special child. She does very well when she's left-hand corner next to another girl um, who is also quiet and works hard. And, you know, <laughs> please don't ask her to stand in front of the class and make any presentations because she gets very anxious and she won't be able to do that. So, you know, if she can just give you the information privately, that would be best. Hmm. So, you know, hmm. that's kind of a typical kind of letter that I would get from a parent. Hmm. Uh, and, well, yes, I am more than used to having kids with learning difficulties and learning challenges come into my classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a big shift to have, like, virtually 75% of the class send me some kind of note of, of concern of what, 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 what's left with my child? What do you need to know about my child? Mm. And the other shift that I was seeing was, you know, 25 years ago when you asked the seventh grader, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? It'd be like, oh, I want to be Madonna. <laughs> I want to be Michael Jordan. And a seventh grader sort of had no concept that, the chances of becoming those things were slim to none. 
And yet nobody is trying to say to them, you shouldn't have that dream. You shouldn't be that. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I remember one little girl who was like, I want to win Olympic gold medal in skating. I said, oh, you know, have you been skating a long time? She's like, yeah, six weeks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, again, there was sort of no, nobody was thinking that a seventh grader needed to be so clear and serious about what her future was that it wasn't okay for her to kind of be in the la-la land of, yeah, I just took up skating and I really like it. I did become an Olympic skater. And so that, I think, exemplifies the kind of loss of innocence of kids sort of coupled with parents' anxiety. Mm-hmm. Seriously, you ask, at least, I mean, I do live in Silicon Valley, so this is, you know, you know, the strongest reaction probably here. But still, you ask a kid, what do you want to be when you grow up? No, we'll give you a very serious expression and say, well, I think I want to go to Berkeley or Stanford, and I don't know if I want to major in computer science and minor in business or major in business and minor in computer science. But, you know, then I think I'll try to go for a big company first, but I know I want to have a startup at some point. (laughs) And they are like 100% serious and sure that this is their path. But if you could see their faces and sort of the, the tense earnestness of like, what a burden Mm. this vision is for them, Mm. right? So instead of it being like, I'm king of the world, I'm a seventh grader, I can do anything, Mm -hmm. you know, it's all about, it's it's like grounded in reality, including the reality of what kind of hard work and focus it's going to take to get to that goal. Mm. Wow, there's a loss of innocence in that. There is a real loss of innocence in that. And again, it is a company. What do I see in parents? You know, instead of what I hear, I'll summarize it this way. It's like they are taking every data point as the new truth rather than seeing, you know, if you look at kids' education sort of from kindergarten through eighth grade, let's say, there are going to be high points and low points, and there are going to be flat points as well. I remember teaching reading to second graders. Um, we would give them these reading tests pretty regularly, and there were, I think, 26 levels they had to progress through. And, you know, as a teacher, you would kind of hit a point where some, maybe a kid would test at the same level for three or four tests in a row. And, you know, you would begin to kind of go like, hmm, how am I missing? What am I, how am I not connecting with this kid? What's not going on here? And then, like, let's say you went away for winter break, and all of a sudden, you'd come back and you'd test them, and they would have shut up like six levels. Hmm. It was like, you know, given enough time to kind of percolate and germinate, mm-hmm. whatever reading skill that they were working on would kind of come together, and boom, there would be this big uptick. Hmm. Nice. And after a while, I began to learn to trust that. Hmm. That, well, okay, some kids go along in a nice little neat progression and they make their progress pretty steadily through level one, level two, level three, level four. And some kids make go one, two, three, four, 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 and 12. And if you can just wait and trust that there's going to be this explosion of learning, an explosion of, of understanding, like, okay, we're back on track. Great. Now the kid is going again. So, you know, in seventh grade, this would kind of translate to, I would tell the parents, look, I used the same writing uh, rubric at the beginning of the year that I used at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. And at the beginning of the year, there's a bunch of stuff on the rubric that I'll have only just begun to introduce to them that are kind of, you know, hard, complicated concepts to get. And it's going to take them a while. So don't be surprised if their scores at the beginning of the year are, you know, 40, 50, 60%, somewhere in that range. And I said, please go home and tell your children this. I'll tell them, but please go home and tell them that you understand that, uh, it's, you know, it's going to take a while to learn how to master Mrs. Stitt's rubric. Lo and behold, I just handed that were, you know, sort of 30, 40, 50, 60%. 
and I would get a deluge of emails and phone calls. <laughs> I'm so worried. What's going to happen? My child is never gone. <laughs> you know, so it was either it was either incredible anxiety or it was aggressive attack. Yeah. I was ruining their future. Uh, I was a bad teacher. They were going to call the superintendent. It was going to go in my permanent record. Wow. Yeah. Well, just, you know, the parental reaction. Yeah. Instead of it being like, oh, I wonder what's up with this. Or even like just believing me when I say I'm going to do this. (laughs) And it's not like I'm doing it to be mean. It's just the way it works. If you haven't mastered something, you don't get a top score on it. And, you know, to write a well-supported, well-organized, well-edited, five-paragraph essay is a complex task. And mostly kids were coming into my class having not mastered that yet. Huh. And so obviously they were going to be lower on the rubric than they would be at the end of the year. Um, so it's, it, you know, it's interesting because, um, yes, of course, all kids have their own particular challenges. Mm-hmm. But it used to be that parents kind of trusted that, more or less, if their kids were on track, that they were going to be okay and they were going to work things out. And when I, you know, when I said I wasn't worried, they in turn, like, oh, okay, great. We won't worry either then. Tell us when to worry, Mrs. Smith. <laughs> right. So, big, big change in parenting. And that, uh, in the last years of teaching, I was also the outreach teacher, which was like school counselor, which meant that I actually got time to sit down and have lengthy conversations with parents Mm -hmm. and to really find out how isolated parents are, how much chatter there is on the one hand, right? You can go dumpster diving on the internet Mm -hmm. and find 26 different answers to any question you ask. But many, many parents are so busy and so stressed they haven't had the time to develop a relationship with the two or three people whom they can really share and really trust so that, you know, you can say like, Oh, it took two hours to do homework last night. And it's just ridiculous. And my kid's going to sleep late and there were tears and, you know, and like people don't expect 12 year old boys to be in tears. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, you know, yeah, you put stress on a 12-year-old boy and that's going to overwhelm them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we used to sort of, first of all, be less worried ourselves. And then secondly, we used to have more time to be connected with other families, other moms, kind of do a check-in so that when I shared something, you could go, oh, yeah, Elizabeth, we see that over here too. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Or like, yep, that's tough. Or even, you know, this is what we tried. I wonder if that might work for you. And and the and the and the levels of of judgment being much lower, mm-hmm. and much more the sense of like it doesn't have to be perfect all the time. And if it's not perfect, that's that's a temporary state. That's not like. Uh, who your child is going to be forever or how it's going to be with your child forever. Hmm. There is so much pressure. Well, we put so much pressure on ourselves. And I think as mothers, we tend to do that based off of what we see around ourselves. And we put this pressure on whatever perfect parenting quote unquote is. Um, but these standards of that children have to reach a certain milestone by a certain age um, but even way back when our kids start walking, a, a pediatrician will say, it's okay that yours isn't walking. But if you know somebody whose little one is walking at the same time, it's kind of almost in your head already that your kid is behind. Um, and society puts a lot of rules and regulations on us that I think we just kind of fall into. And like you said, having those parents that you can relate to, who you can actually reach out and say, boy, we're struggling right now. But in a year, it really could change. And you've got that comfort level with somebody who's saying, you know what, I've been there or Man, we're going through that too right now. Next year, it's going to be so different for everybody, and including your child. It's going to be so different for your child. <laughs> so important. Right. And I mean, one of the lovely things about teaching seventh grade 
uh, is that you're kind of right in the middle. If you kind of think 12 mm-hmm. to 24, right? That you're sort of halfway through the child's development. And of course I taught enough years that I had the advantage of, you know, to it graduated from college coming back and saying like, you know, here I am. <laughs> I went right. to high school. I thought I was going to college and, and I'm on my way to having a happy, successful, meaningful life. Yeah. And we can have a good chuckle about what a mess, an unmitigated mess they were in seventh grade or what a total <laughs> pain in the neck yes. they were in seventh grade. Yeah. Or, you know, how as a teacher, I pounded my hand against the wall, begging, pleading, condoling. Thing, whatever I could do to try to get them to focus and turn work in <laughs> and you know and it's wonderful for me to have those perspectives yeah. because it, it allows me to say with a lot of confidence that um, you know of my my 3,000 students later <laughs> I haven't heard one who who has just been you know who has completely messed up Mm. or it's completely derailed or gone off track. Mm. And I have many, 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 many examples of kids whose, you know, if you were drawing a graph of their life, um, looked pretty messy and off track in seventh and eighth grade, sixth, seventh and eighth grade. Mm. And then, you know, sort of ninth, tenth really picked things up and then they were off and running. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I even have examples of kids who, you know, whose high school's careers look um, maybe atypical in that maybe they didn't go straight through four years of high school and into a four-year college. You know, maybe they did miss some of those those data points in high school and they had to take summer school. And then, you know, maybe they switched to the junior college program because the high school scene just wasn't a good fit for them. Or maybe they squeaked by with a GED and then they went to community college for a couple of years and then, you know, they're transferring to Berkeley or to UCLA mm-hmm. or to something and getting themselves on track. Mm. So, you know, there are so, and this is, I have to say that to all your listeners who did not grow up in this country, one of the great things about the United States education system is that you don't have to figure it out by the time you're 12 years old. And I know that that's not true in every other country in the world. I know that there are school systems where kids get tracked very uh, narrowly. Mm -hmm. And then they've got these gates that they have to get through at various levels in order to continue on that track. And that is just not the case in the United States. That um, a high school career can look very, very checkered. And, you know, they can kind of scrape their way into places or go around things rather than, you know, straight on the path and still get there. And those are, there are other examples that I have. And I really love the examples of those kids too, Mm. because the parent might be pulling their hair out and, you know, everyone might be going, I don't know what this is going to look like, you know, kids who, kids who missed like almost half their high school career because they were late to class or they were, or they were just absent because stuff was going on at home. that was messy or they were depressed, you know, mm-hmm. who somehow still scraped something together and who got into good schools and were able to get jobs um, and have meaningful lives. Isn't that amazing? That's, I so, just love that. Yeah. It, it, <laughs> it, I love it too. I really love it too because so. you may feel like, you know, you have that kid. I love the title of your of your uh, podcast. <laughs> you may feel like you have that kid who doesn't fit the mold, mm-hmm. and whose and whose past doesn't look like everybody else's past. And you may be swamped with fear that because the past doesn't look the same, you're not going to get the outcome that you want of, you know, steady, happy, meaningful existence as an adult. Right. Yes. And that is a parent. You know, what I really, really want parents to know and to understand is that uh, childhood is supposed to be messy. <laughs> We're supposed to be making mistakes. Kids are supposed, they grow at different, different rates. 
and in different ways hmm. and with different strengths. Yeah. Yeah, they do. <laughs> they do. And you, you made a really good point when you were saying that parents, um, they trusted you when you said, well, I, I'm not worried and that they, you were, you, you would let them know when they could start worrying. And um, I actually just wrote a thing about that, how really working with the teacher involved with your kid, because your kid might not be on the path that you think in your head is the correct path, but being involved with your teacher and on the same page with your teacher is going to help your kid way more than you trying to put them in this mold or this box, that it's just not them. It's just not going to fit them. Um, and believing that the adult you have entrusted your child with for eight, 12 hours, however long they're at school, um, really does know what they're doing <laughs> and helping them guide them to whatever path is perfect for them outside of that box. Yeah. And I love the combination because the parent always knows the child best. Mm -hmm. And the teacher always has the perspective of what does your child's profile look like against the backdrop of the hundreds, thousands of children that I've taught or mm -hmm. helped. Mm -hmm. And both perspectives are so valuable. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Right? Nobody's going to know the child better than the parent. So I always want to listen to checking with the parent. And I always tell parents, you know, at the end of the day, you go with your instinct. Right. And at the same time, I beg them to be open to receiving and trusting the, uh, the input of the professionals who also are watching their child and yeah. also want the best for their child. Yeah. Well, that leads me into, so what you're doing now, because you have this amazing background, how do you work directly with parents now that you're out of the school system? Um, what does that kind of look like for you and helping parents um, learn <laughs> learn how to be a, a parent, the best parent for their child, and then how to help their child grow um, in, in their child's own time, of course? Yeah, so I decided at some point I was just got really thinking about what parents are experiencing, and I my mission sort of shifted from supporting kids to, to wanting to support parents so mm -hmm. that they in turn could shift their, support their kids. Mm -hmm. And I call myself a parent educator slash parent coach. Uh, but in the education realm, I am, I don't ascribe to one parenting philosophy because what I found with working with so many different families was that there's actually a very wide range of parenting behaviors that can be effective. Hmm. And so, you know, the first thing that I want to do with parents is I want to check in with what are their values and priorities. Mm -hmm. And partly this is because I just know that you can see the blue in the face, but if what you're saying isn't in alignment with the person that you're talking to, it just doesn't sink in and it's just not of use to them. Right, right. So I always want to start with, you know, where is the parent and what is, what are their greatest hopes, dreams, fears, concerns, uh, passions, interests, desires for their kids. And then help them to kind of focus. What I really want for them is to, is to spend enough time reflecting so that they create a lens for themselves. And that lens should be a reflection of sort of their core values and beliefs. And I want them to use that lens looking at any kind of parenting advice and or parenting situation. So, hmm. you know, for instance, if, um, you know, let's say that I have um, really sat down and I've done some work and I've reflected about, you know, my own life, my own happiness, you know, who I am as an adult, what I want for my kids. And I've decided that, you know, one of the things that served me so well was like knowing that my family was there 100% for me mm. and that family time is 100% worth it. Okay. So now I have that in my lens and I'm putting that in front of everything that comes along so that, you know, when I'm picking my child up from school and we're, we're standing waiting for the kids to come out and someone else goes like, oh, hey, Elizabeth. You know, are you going to enroll Julie in the chess class on Friday afternoon? And, you know, I go, oh, yeah, no, I don't think so. They're like, oh, well, you know, 
test is really good. It helps develop math skills and critical thinking skills, and it would be really useful. And plus, the chess teacher is fantastic and is supposed to be really good. Now, if I listen to this or look at this without my lens, I might begin to go like, oh, oh my gosh, there's this fantastic opportunity for my child. Maybe I should have her going to chess. And, well, she does kind of struggle with math a little. Maybe this would really up her math skill. And all of a sudden, I'm going to be like, going into this tailspin of like, how would this work logistically? What would we have to give up to do it? What is the cost going to be? If on the other hand, I put my lens in front that says like, no, family time is critical. And in our family, we've already decided that Friday afternoons are our play day and that we leave school and we go and we play on Friday afternoons. Mm. And that's what's in the schedule. And that's what's really important. And we're not going to jeopardize that because we've already decided that we have carved, made the effort to carve out clear family time so that the ritual and routine that our kids can depend on. And we're not going to just throw that out the window because all of a sudden we're kind of feeling guilty that maybe we're denying our child some opportunity. Mm. Mm. I like that. Wow. Yeah. That probably makes choices easier when you are very clear on exactly your values for your family, but not just for you as the adult, but you as, or excuse me, also the children in the relationship. They too have an idea of what your values are. Um, probably helps with the relationship between the two. <laughs> if everybody in the family is on the same page. Love, 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 love that you put that. And that, and, and it helps because when you're clear, it's sort of every fiber in your body transmits that confidence Mm -hmm. and clarity that this is what we do in our family. Right. So it makes it easy for kids. Well, A, it makes it easy for them to kind of absorb and to accept, Mm -hmm. but B, it lends to their own sense of security Mm -hmm. because, you know, if some other friend says, well, why aren't you in the chess class? And, you know, then your child says, no, Friday afternoons are our family day. Right. And, you know, maybe the other kids goes like, well, you know, I bet my math scores are going to be better than yours because, you know, I'm going to be able to beat you in chess. <laughs> you know, a, a kid's going to be able to go, well, in our family, spending time together is more important. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, right? When yeah. you have expressed it with that level of clarity and you have upheld that commitment over and over, then your kids can just say it. Yeah. So mine are very small. Chess is nowhere near our future right now, but that's something we use in our family a lot when, especially my little boy who questions everything I say, he's always wanting to learn more about whatever it might be that I'm talking about. But we always respond back with, well, in our family, we do whatever that might be, or we don't do whatever that might be. And it's very clear to him because that's how he thinks. He's very logical. It's very clear that this is our family's rules, paths, values, um, whatever we might be talking about. And it definitely helps decrease the arguments, <laughs> the little back and forth. Well, well, what if, what if, or can I, or may I? Because it's just very clear to him being five, this is what our family does. Right. Exactly. It's a lot exactly. And that, and you know, sometimes I'll, be walking down the hall of a school or something and I'll hear a noise in a classroom and I'll step in the room to find that the teacher has stepped out and Hmm. the parent volunteers are there. And I don't, I don't even have to say anything. I just walk into the classroom and stand and start looking at kids and the class quiets down. And the parents are like, how do you do that? And I do it by just transmitting this message, this silent, absolutely clear message Everything in the way that I stand and I look at students says, it's too noisy in here. You guys need to calm down. Mm-hmm. And that is what I expect. Right. And they know that. I don't, I don't have to, and they know that. I don't have to get loud. I don't have to get mad. I don't have to get dramatic. I just have to be this calm, authoritative figure that says, you know, the, the, the rule of order is here. And um, so you guys are going to quiet down and then continue working. So do you share that with, a, um, with parents as you're working with them individually? Is that one of maybe the, I do. yeah, I do. 
uh, it's actually one of my favorite um, techniques for getting kids cooperation or getting kids to listen. I'll, I will share it with you. I call it the sustained connect. Sustained connect. And the sustained connect comes in when uh, you've already asked your child to do something. And maybe you've even, you've done your other, you've like set your kid up for success. Like let's say that it's after dinner and they are um, building Lego. And you have, you know, at the end of dinner, you have said, um, you guys have about 20 minutes, 25 minutes to play with your Lego before, you know, we're going to go to take baths before bedtime. I'm going to give you a five minute warning. And then I expect you to clean up because it will be bad. Mm -hmm. So you've already set them up for success. And then you come in and you give them their five minute warning. They're like, okay, five minute warning. I'm setting the timer. It's right here. It's there. They can see it. And now the bing goes off and you come up, come in and you're like, clean up. And you know, they're ignoring you. And they continue to build with their Lego. This would yeah. never happen in your house, right, <laughs> Ashley? Awfully familiar. Or it looks at me, no, it's not time. <laughs> yeah, right. Or else, no, or else it starts the, just five, four minutes, yep. whatever it is, whatever it is. So instead of getting hooked up in that argument, yeah. you go over, you get low, preferably your eyes are going to be below there. You feel, you've got to like, have this feeling in your body that's like this zen, calm, softness. Make physical contact, and you look at them, and you say, clean up. Hmm. And you smile at them lovingly, benignly. You do not take your eyes off of them until they have stopped what they're doing. And if their little hands can't hmm. stop moving, you kind of sometimes have your face between them and the Legos kind of leaning forward. Mm -hmm. And if they really don't stop, you gently put your hands on their hands and you gently hold their hands so that they can't grab for more Lego. Right. And you continue to smile benignly and you don't say anything. Hmm. Hmm. I'm going to be trying this tonight after dinner. <laughs> I'm very excited. And, and the weight, yeah, and, and the weight can, you know, feel excruciating. And I tell parents, you know, count to 100 if you have to count to 100. Oh. Because it's, you know, especially when you first use it, they're going to be like, huh? <laughs> what are you doing? You're just right. continuing. But it's not like they don't know what your expectation is. Right. <laughs> it's routine. You set the expectation. The command was clear. And what you're waiting for is for the shift in their body energy. Right. And when, when their body energy is shifted, then you can move into a technique like, you know, are you going to, are you going to break your part, your Lego before you put it away? Or are you going to try to put it away? And in, in, is there any of this that we need to save for tomorrow? Hmm. But you have, you have to wait for that energy shift. Right? You have to wait for the expression to soften, for the hands to soften. You've got, you've got your hands on their shoulder. You can feel the tension go out of them that says, like, okay, I'm not fighting whether or not we're doing this anymore. Right. Because <laughs> mom clearly is going to just sit here and wait me out. <laughs> because every fiber in her being is saying, it's time for cleanup and I have all night to wait for you because I'm not going anywhere until that's what happens. And I'm not mad. <laughs> but we're not talking about this either. Right. Um, and, you know, the, one of the traps that parents will get pulled into, you can imagine the, you know, the pleading, the, mm -hmm. the, just one more, I just need to finish this. If I don't finish this, my life will be incomplete. Uh, or, you know, you're so unfair. I hate you. I'm mad. Or, you know, a little, oh, everything gets tense and tight depending on who the kid is. And you know your child, you know which is more likely to happen. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, for the parent who can't bear to see his child unhappy, um, in the short run, this will be very, very hard because his instinct to soothe things over uh, will be so great. But in fact, you are just 
you're just lovingly waiting. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, this is, this is a very, very gentle technique, but it has this core of strength and clarity and sort of like oak tree energy. Like I am the parent. I am the great mature oak. I can wait you out, my little darling sapling. Hmm. And, um, you know, we are going, we are going towards bath. <laughs> That's a lot of personal growth for a parent, especially like you said, if they're just, they don't want to see their little one upset. And so it's, you know, at that moment in time, it's easier to say, okay, one more Lego or okay, five more minutes. Um, but sitting through that uncomfortableness for a while will help. Yeah. But, wow. That's amazing. I do like that. <laughs> we always it's joke. Hard. In my, I mean, it's hard to yeah, it's so hard. We always joke at my children's school that there must be something pumped through the ceilings because how are all those kids sitting there so quietly? And the way that the teachers just carry themselves, it's so, it's amazing to watch that. And then we try to bring that home with us as well. Like you said, just hold that, you know, be confident in yourself and just sit there and wait for that because that moment will come when they're saying, okay, and they get up and walk to the bath. And, you know, I, I would love to say that I was a natural uh, manager discipliner in my classroom and I was not I had to use a lot of tricks for myself yeah to become become super aware um and I used to I speak German so I used to write myself like posters in German to remind <laughs> myself um so that the kids didn't know what I was up there but it was like smack right like you know just next to the clock or something um and like for me, I, I am, I'm kind of a hyper person. I'm a loud person. I'm uh, sort of, sort of a tigger. Like I kind of have like the sort of hyper bouncy energy. Yeah. And so, you know, and I, I remember when I was first, one of the things I was criticized for when I was first teaching was I would say, you guys, shut up. Shut up with that. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know. Okay, so clearly, first of all, in my family, nobody had ever told me that to say shut up was rude. Right. In my family, we'd be like, shut up, shut up, shut up, it's my turn. <laughs> and we talked over each other. And, you know, and somebody else would stand looking at our family and say, you know, wow, you guys are really disrespectful. <laughs> and I don't think we were, I think it was just our family style, but it didn't translate super well to <laughs> a classroom. Uh, because, first of all, for some kids, it it probably was offensive to be told right. to shut up. Right, right. And, and then secondly, it was just too, too loud, too energetic. Right. When you, what you're trying to do was to like, calm kids down and to focus them. And so this technique of saying, uh, and you know, what I literally learned to do first was don't make a correction from across the room. Hmm. So if you're in the back row, and you and Susie have been passing notes the last five minutes. I'm going to keep teaching, but as I teach, I'm going to walk over to you two girls, and I'm going to stand right above you, and I'm going to teach from right above you. And then, you know, I might say something to the whole class, like, okay, you want to be sure to write this down. Everybody write this down. And then I'm going to pause, and I'm going to lean down. I'm going to whisper, and I'm going to say, Susie, Ashley, Fantastic notes. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, do you um, do you kind of teach parents that as well? I think that's just a valuable lesson for parents who, I feel like for us, our conversations start to happen farther and farther apart. I'm in the kitchen and the kids are in their playroom, and all of a sudden, I'm like, "Why are we all trying to figure out an answer when we're three rooms away from each other?" And come together, or I go to them to try to solve whatever it might be. Um, Yes. I feel like that's for us, at least, that seems to be where things start to escalate. And so I have to remind myself, whoa, why are we not closer together working through this? Why am I so distant from you, expecting you to do something different? And a, re- <laughs> a really good check is when you feel like you're being disrespected. Yeah. You're like, oh, great. I'm shouting at them from the other room. That's not the modeling I want to be doing. Right. So I'm going to turn off the stove or put down what it is that I'm working on. And I am going to walk to the other room. I'm going to get soft and low. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to say, okay, we need to make a plan here. Or address whatever it is. Right. But a really good first check is if you feel like your, your child's being disrespectful to you, mm-hmm. check yourself. Because I think 
when a teacher, you know, calls out from the other side of the room so that the whole class hears and the whole class is looking and it's like, you know, and then uses that tone of voice, it's like, Ashley, mm-hmm. Susie, stop passing notes. It's matching their disrespect. I mean, it's disrespectful to pass notes. It's matching their disrespect with your own disrespect. Right. Right. Hmm. I like that. But, you know, when you go back and you catch them quietly and you let them know, it is hard for me to teach when you pass notes. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Need you to stop, please. Right. Like right. Then yeah, their own little sense of their own little sense of like, oh yeah, like it's just that little reminder of, of you know that little pang of yes, we wanted to pass notes and we're having fun, but we didn't actually want to make your life harder. Right. <laughs> that wasn't our goal. Um, right. So do you work with? Children, well, I'm sure you do. I guess let me change my question. When you see adults and families that you're working with, if their child has maybe special areas need more focusing, so if they're struggling in school because of um, ADD or for my son in particular, he has sensory processing disorder, do you find that you have to adjust your techniques with the parents or um, provide more tools, less tools, more resources? Or do you feel like in general, a lot of the um, education and work that you're doing with these parents can go kind of across the board for all parents and all families? Um, For sure, one of the things I found as a teacher was that good teaching is good teaching. So as a classroom teacher, I had a lot to learn from the special education teachers about sort of good teaching techniques, techniques for approaching kids with multiple modalities Mm -hmm. for being super clear for making things more concrete for how to chunk things learning for kids and so i think that the same is true to a great degree as a parent when you have a child with some kind of learning disability at home Mm -hmm. that in general um good parenting techniques are good parenting techniques Mm -hmm. the thing is though that you have to allow for two two things. One is a different timeline, right? So I have an article that has been spread around the web, tons, a very popular article, 10 things that kids should be able to do on their own by the end of middle school. Now, this is where I want parents to have this filter. I want them to have the filter that says, oh, that's a great goal. And we recognize, Elizabeth, that you have written that from the point of view of like the majority of kids, but that's not the timeline my kid is on. So while I'm going to take those 10 things as adult skills that we are working towards, I'm not going to flip out if my kid isn't on that timeline Mm -hmm. because I'm going to just keep working on where my child is right now and bringing them up plus one. So, you know, let's say that, um, you know, one of the things that kids should be able to do by middle school certainly is to do all of their, you know, own ablutions, get up, get dressed, get themselves organized, make their lunch, make their own breakfast, and be ready to go out the door. You know, if you have an ADD child who can't do three tasks strung together without getting absorbed in something else and getting completely off track, you're not going to be saying that by middle school, I need that level of independence, right? Because there's that level of independence. They basically says, my parent doesn't need to be there at all in the mornings and I can get myself up and out the door to school. Right. And that is a totally realistic goal for, you know, 75% of families. But if you're in the 25% for whom it's not a realistic goal, It doesn't mean it's not a realistic goal ever. It just means that it might not be happening 100% by middle school. Mm -hmm. And that you're going to have to build, you're going to have to build in extra supports in order to make that happen for that child. You're going to have to be more creative. Mm -hmm. This is the other thing I'd say, that when I work with parents, you know, if I have a bag of tricks, if my bag of tricks is 100 tricks deep, for, you know, getting a school, a kid up and out the door in the morning. The top 10 techniques are going to work, again, for 75, 80% of families. 
And for the rest of them, I might have to go 20 tricks deep or mm-hmm. 30 tricks deep. We might have to try 40 different things before we find the thing that seems to really hook and work for the child that you have at home. And that's okay. That's not a question at parenting. It's not a question of uh, failing. It's just a question of going like, oh, okay, let's, let's try something else. And, and the other thing I would say is that, you know, sometimes we're too quick to say that something's not working. And we just need to give it more time. Right. That's sort of like going back to the reading, you know, at what level are you reading? Like maybe the, the input reading instruction is actually appropriate. Mm-hmm. It's just that the processing is taking longer. And so, you know, instead of needing two months for that cognitive task, a child needs four months uh, to absorb everything. And then four months of, cognitive input is all of a sudden going to show up in the output. Mm. Yeah. So at two months, you don't want to think that you're failing. You want to, you want to be curious and responsive, but, but you know, you still want to, you still want to kind of be in the, let's, let's, you know, let's not assume that there's no learning going on here just because we're not seeing the output. Well, and that's, I think a struggle just in life in general, where you're on always on this path of needing things instantaneously. It, we, we put in the work, so we need the results tomorrow instead of just letting it sit there and stew for a while and um, let it grow on its own. And I have a feeling that's probably how our brains work too. We just, we're, we just need to let that information soak in and um, watch it kind of do its thing on after you've provided the information, it's going to do its own thing and show up and it's time whenever time might that, that might be for that child or person. You ha- yes. Oh, go ahead. Nope. <laughs> um, you had mentioned a few times, and this I just love this. You had said a few times that that's okay. Like it's okay that they didn't reach the milestone that the textbook says that, that a child should be reaching at this point, um, and that's okay if it takes them longer to learn, or we have to dig deeper in our bag of tricks. I think that's so hard to believe as a parent when you're struggling with your child in the moment, in the thick of that moment, that it really is okay, that next year, this isn't going to look like this. Um, Do you find that you have parents that you're really having to sit there with and work through their beliefs in their parenting? And then of course, which would overflow onto their child, that it is okay that their kid is how they are right now. Um, especially probably when they would first come to you, I would assume that most people are thinking, this isn't okay. This isn't all right. Something is wrong here. Yeah. And one of the things I remind them is that, you know, especially uh, let's say, for example, that a child is being truly disrespectful back, like, Mm -hmm. oh, you know, yelling, kicking, screaming, profanities, um, just rude and and non-responsive, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Sometimes parents will have gotten into a situation with their kids and, you know, maybe there was, um, like maybe one child was ill for a long time. And so now you, now you feel guilty. And like during the time that the child was ill, you asked a lot of your other child. And now you feel guilty because of how much you had to ask. And so you keep giving in and you keep, you keep making exceptions and you say, you know, well, oh, I've asked so much of, I've asked so much of, of Johnny. I'm not, I'm just going to let him slide on this one. So yes, he's impatient. Yes, he's rude. Yes, he's being demanding. Yes, whatever it is. Which in the short run is probably okay. But if you let it go on, you are, you're sending the wrong message. You're, you're sending a message to your child that, that says, um, I'm not going to be continue, you know, we had a crisis in this family and, and it knocked me off kilter. So I'm not going to be the leader in this family. I'm not going to make clear what are our standards of behavior? How do we treat each other respectfully? Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to hold you to that standard because our family is out of kilter, off balance, et cetera. So instead of, you know, when we give into our child in that way and we let it go, um, 
we are increasing the child's sense of insecurity and their sense that, you know, my world is not ordered the way it's supposed to be ordered with mom and dad telling kids what to do. Right. So, you know, I tell parents that dynamic, you didn't set out to create that dynamic. Right. It didn't get created overnight. It's got, you know, it took a long time to kind of develop. And in the same way, as we work together, you are going to set back on the path of having clear limits, find limits, but firm and clear limits. And that's going to be hard for you to do. And so it's going to take a while for you to learn to be consistent. And then it's going to take a while for your child to kind of believe you and to settle down into an existence which says like, oh, actually I am much happier and I like life much better <laughs> when mom says no to me and she, and she provides that clear guidance as an adult. Mm-hmm. And so it took time to get into the situation. It's going to take time to get out of the situation. Right. That's a good one. Yes. Wasn't overnight and it's not going to fix itself overnight. No, but again, it's like, it doesn't have to be solved tomorrow. Right. Hmm. Hmm. Um, so I love to read. I just, I, I love to read in hopes that maybe there's a golden ticket in life to everything, <laughs> not just parenting, everything. So I'm always curious, people who have a professional path with children, if what books that they love to read about parenting or childhood development, anything along those lines, do you have any that you find very helpful or knowledgeable for parents specifically to read, especially as we're trying to raise our children and learning that this is okay in this moment of life for us, that kind of this is how kids are right now? Well, I mean, I can say that the, the books that guided me first as a teacher and then as a parent were, were the positive discipline books. Okay. Um, yeah. And, you know, the how to talk so that kids will listen and listen to talk are, are part of that, mm-hmm. that philosophy, yeah. too. Um, and for me, and I try to do a lot of this in my own blog, um, I find it very helpful to hear, like, what are the words you use? What do you, what do you actually say to the child? And how do you stay persistent? Um, so for me, I like to find those resources that sort of map out. Uh, Dr. Laura Markham does a great job with this too. A lot of her blogs will like give you the whole theme and kind of walk you through step by step. Um, so I, you know, I, my kids are grown and I still read AHA Parenting's newsletter oh. uh, because I always love to see what her perspective is and, and it's such a great reminder. Oh. Um, so, you know, I think I this is again is a part of like putting the the lens in front of you. Mm-hmm. Find those two or three experts that you resonate with, and that you've had success with, them and feel constructive. And then, you know, keep checking in with them and keep reading their stuff because uh, you don't want to have twenty six different opinions being thrown at you at once. It will not serve you it will serve you more to kind of identify somebody that, that, that you, that you like, and then keep going back to saying now what would you say about this? What would this look like in this situation? How would I apply this to that situation? Mm-hmm. Okay. I like that. Yeah. That, so there's, I always think three tips of information nuggets is always a good thing to take home whenever you have done some research or you've for me, especially listening to podcasts, I always want to go, okay, what are some three things that I just really valued? And I think you touched on that, finding somebody that you um, see through the same kind of lens, you respect the same kind of views, and then continuing to follow that path with that person. So whether it's podcasting, blogs, um, the other that you mentioned is community, like having a couple of, I'm going to say mom friends, friends, just because that's what I have as a mother, of course, Um, having them to lean into and know that I'm not going to be judged. <laughs> I sure don't feel like it, but having them to be, lean into that I'm not going to be judged based off of what my child is doing or how I'm acting with my kid right now in this moment in our life or where things are. Um, do you have a third that you would say to somebody who's looking for some support, some tools, some um, guidance? Well, I think I would go back to that initial idea of 
don't take every data point as the trajectory for your child's whole life. <laughs> okay, I like that. Yes. But, you know, right? Like, really kind of look look at the long haul. And by long haul, you know, I mean, really, you know, you can kind of look, say, what are six months? What is a year? What is two years? And sometimes it helps to look back and to identify some concrete places where maybe you were nervous and then it worked out. Mm-hmm. And that will help give you some some calm and confidence for your current situation. Hmm. Yes. Um, I mean, my daughter, for example, was a late talker. She really didn't talk. Uh, she sort of did the ma-ba-da kind of uh-huh. communication. Um, really until like 27 months, which yeah. compared to her best friend who went on a much more, you know, like clearly progressive line of development, you, you kind of were feeling like, like um, what's going on with this kid? And then, you know, one day she walked in and she said, Mommy, Daddy needs a wrench. Oh. <laughs> oh. Right? And she just took off and she hasn't shut up since. <laughs> um, right? It's like she's a fabulous talker. <laughs> and if I had, if I had been... Um, if I had been allowing myself, now it helped that I myself was a late talker. Huh. So I kind of, I, my mom had told me that, so I kind of knew knew that. But what was interesting was that it, there were other parallels, such as um, like learning to ride a bike. Like we started her trying to learn a bike, and she was basically like, no, I don't want to do this. And then... Six months later, she was like, I want to learn to ride a bike. And then in one afternoon, she learned how to ride a bike. Wow. And potty training was the same way. I said, let's try, you know, let's try to have it. Let's try, let's try a day with underwear. And she had an accident and she's like, no, I want to wear my diapers. I was like, okay. And then one day she came and she said, I want to wear underwear. Oh. I'm like, okay. And she, she she just started wearing underwear. We never did the little potty thing. We never did. I mean, wow. I had sort of started with the reading, the reading the potty books and, and reading everything else, you know, and, and, and talking about poop and, and those kinds of introductory things you do. But I never had the weekend of like run around naked and do you need to go to potty now? Do you need right. to go to potty now? Do you need to go? No, I know. We didn't do all that stuff. And she just like, when she decided the time was right, that time was right. Hmm. And, yes, it's fabulous. Right? And so, like, then when she wasn't reading, really, at the beginning of, of the, you know, kind of like the second grade, and at the second grade, the teacher finally said, you know, I think it's time to go get her tested. And so we went and we had her tested, and she was sort of all over the place, right? You know, she's in the 99th percentile on something, then the... 26th percentile and other things. And, but about six weeks with a specialist. And it was like all that learning just came together. It was like, oh, here's the missing piece, cha-ching. And, you know, by Thanksgiving, she was reading all the Magic Treehouse books (sighs) and reading right through the series and and would not put a book. You couldn't get her to do anything else because she needed to read through the whole series. That's wonderful. So, (laughs) again... If I, you know, if I had had this expectation that if she isn't reading by kindergarten, uh, which is pretty much the expectation in the California curriculum, um, you know, if she isn't reading by kindergarten, that's it. We've had it. We're, you know, she's, she's going to be struggling her whole life long. Um, but fortunately, you know, fortunately, I mean, this was the advantage of coming as an educator is that I had more perspective, which allowed me to be more patient. But it was also looking at her learning style and having these previous experiences of her mm-hmm. that kind of let me know, like, okay, um, she's, she's a kid. She's, she's one of these flatliner kids. She's one of these kids that look like there's no progress, there's no progress, there's no progress. But in fact, clearly, she's doing a ton of processing. Mm-hmm. We, just can't, we just can't see it. And like I used to, you know, I was a teacher and I used to do, 
I used to try to try to do activities or something to be like, stop playing your teacher games on me. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) You know, Um, and I would back off. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Now, obviously, there was kind of that critical point where somebody else coming in and doing just the right intervention really made the difference. Right. And so you could say, well, but what if you didn't know that? Or what if that hadn't happened? You know, would she still not have been reading? And what I have to think is that given who she has been as a learner, that uh, she would have found some kind of workaround. Mm-hmm. And she would, have, she would have, have, have figured it out herself. And I'm not saying don't get help because the early interventions that, that, piece, you know, that, that have been developing in the last 20 years are phenomenal. It's wonderful how much more we're understanding about children and their brains and how they learn and what might help fill in the piece. So sure, listen to the professional, mm-hmm. get feedback, find things out, go with your gut. And at the same time, don't freak out too much and trust that um, when we look at adult skill levels, uh, kids, kids are fine. You know, the old joke about they're not going to still be sleeping with you when they when they go off to college, or they're not going to go, still gonna be they're not going to send them to college when they're still in diapers. Yeah, <laughs> right. And and when we take the twenty year view, all of these things that feel very hot and and scary in the short run, you just you just kind of shrug your shoulders and go like, oh my god. I, I spent so much energy worrying about that. <laughs> you are speaking directly to me because this morning was such a hard morning to get everybody dressed and out. And I remember sitting in the car going, how are they ever going to make it through the world? <laughs> I just don't understand. He could barely get his socks on. <laughs> he refused to brush her hair. What is society going to do with them? And then I dropped them off, had a sip of coffee and went, okay, well, we'll see what happens tomorrow. Kind of just let it all go. But in the moment, in that heat of the moment, I was just like, they're never going to be adults like this. <laughs> They want to reveal the yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I actually love all three of those. All, those are all great little tips and advice, um, especially when, as a parent, you're in the fear of the moment, like, oh my goodness, it's never going to turn out. But to stop and just kind of evaluate it and just look, this is not in 20 years, it's not going to be this way. And I, I told myself that when my daughter was potty training, she was very difficult. And I just said, well, I'm kind of done trying. She'll figure it out when she's ready. She's definitely not going to be going to college in diapers. She's not that kind of person. She wouldn't let herself do that. So, and she's fine now. We've got it. But I had to let it go at that point and say, this was up to her. This was no longer up to us. And it did take her quite a bit longer than her brother to figure that out. Um, right. Well, so I, it may, may just, right. Yeah. No, well, go I ahead. Yeah. Say, it could be that she was just in more, you know, she was more aware of the power struggle. <laughs> that, that's possible too. She is also just the child that, um, you know, she just lives in that exact moment. We, my son does not. He plans. Everything in his life is very, very planned. And if it's not, that's kind of when things fall apart for us. But for her, she lives in, in the moment. And going to the restroom or thinking about going to the restroom is not in the moment. You have to plan for that because in the moment is usually too late. <laughs> so we learned that yeah, for her. Yeah, exactly. She was in the moment and we're like, you're not in the restroom. What are you doing? <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so much. So I want to share your contact information. I know that you have a blog. And so do you send out newsletters so that people can sign up and get your blog on a regular basis? If they were to go onto your website, elizabethstitt.com? Yes, it's easy to sign up for the newsletter. And I do send one out every week. And I don't always remember to post things on the website, but I do always send send them out something every week so it's actually um the better way to kind of of get that information okay and then joyful parenting coaching is your facebook site and i actually like scrolling through it because you put a lot of really good articles in there um i have read quite a few of them that you've shared so i think that's a great resource for people who are looking for tools but i would assume then that you probably talk about some of this in your newsletters or it's along the same lines i shouldn't say talk about each article but you're belief in how you're um, helping parents is very similar to what you're sharing on your Facebook page. So um, I think, I thank you for putting those up there. Yeah. I mean, I, 
I, right. Yeah, I pick articles because they resonate with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, this is where like finding your person right. is important, Absolutely. right? Because it's like, don't take what Elizabeth says as the gospel truth. She has a bias. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, if, if the bias in general feels supportive to you and helpful and useful to you, well, then, you know, maybe she's one of the people that you follow. Mm-hmm. But if you're sitting there arguing, going like, nope, that's not true. That doesn't feel right. <laughs> you know, go find somebody else. Right. <laughs> right. Don't waste your time arguing when it's not the answer you're looking for. <laughs> All right. Well, right. thank you. And it's not to say that you'll never disagree with the people that you're listening to. But if you want to agree with like the chunk of it so that right. when they bring up an idea that sounds like a little bit hard for you, you then can go like, oh, okay, well, basically I've trusted what she said, right. so I'm going to give this some thought. Yeah. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's my family and I need to do what works for me. Yes, that's, that's so true. That is, yeah. So people can contact you through your website, elizabethstitt.com. I would assume that's probably the easiest. Most Facebook Messenger seems to be really messy, and I don't know why people contact people through that. Um, <clears throat> <laughs> For me, at least. I'm like, why are you on oh. here with me? <laughs> I'm, I'm actually a fan of the good old-fashioned cell phone or a good old-fashioned phone call. That personally is one of my biggest, <laughs> just call me. Um, but thank you yeah. so and much. That works too. Oh, you're so welcome. You're just, I love all the knowledge. And I, I, like I said, I love having your Facebook as one more resource for me in parenting. And I'm um, really excited to share this with people. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you. Have a great rest of your day today. I will do that. You too. All right. Bye. Thanks for listening to Parenting That Kid. If you like what you heard, be sure to head over to parentingthatkid.com and subscribe for early release podcasts, blogs, and a chance to have your questions presented to the professionals. Oh, and hey, imperfect parent. I know parenting that kid is hella hard, but I'm telling you, it's worth it. You're rocking this parenting world. Until next time.